Hey, I'm in Japan. I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mark Moffat will join us to discuss the world of ants. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, ants are fascinating creatures. The variety of species, the complexity of behavior, and their sheer ubiquity makes them intriguing subjects for study. Well, what can we learn from these fascinating and amazing organisms? Join us today to discuss this fascinating world of ants is Dr. Mark Moffat. Dr. Moffat, perhaps may be best described as the Indiana Jones of entomology, having earned his doctorate from E.O. Wilson at Harvard and currently a research associate at the Smithsonian Institute. He has penned numerous research and popular works on natural history, including The High Frontier and Face to Face with Frogs. His latest release, Adventures Among Ants, a global safari with a cast of thousands, explores the fascinating world of ants for a general audience. Dr. Moffat, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. A uh, pleasure, Charles. Well, certainly our pleasure, and I think this is really a, a fascinating and certainly a very colorful book, Your Adventures with Ants. Uh, I'm curious, why ants? Well, don't you get sick of uh, books on uh, articles and stories on pandas and bears and whales and think, well, there must be something else out there. And, uh, well, the truth is, it was kind of a challenge for me. Can you make an adventure book about something like an ant? And uh, I travel the world looking for strange species. And so I took it upon myself to spend, well, the last few years going to obscure places to see the most remarkable ants. So this book is a series of meetings with remarkable ants. Ants are something I grew up with. I mean, I think most people did. They just kind of forget. You're down at their level when you're starting life. Ants seem a lot taller when you're an infant. And when I was a baby, I watched ants apparently in diapers, or so my parents tell me. Was interested in them from the start, as I think kids are in general, just because they have all this activity and we can identify with it. There's all this building, there's this warfare, they're collecting the food. It's all social. Everything they do is a collective process in groups that is very human in its overall character. And as I matured in life, I began to realize that these parallels are truly there in the ant, and then we can go to the ant, as the Bible tells us to. King Solomon was indeed wise to say, go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, and learn a lot from them. And, and indeed, uh, there are a lot of parallels between humans and ants that point out in the book. Is it really surprising that that's the case? Surprising at first, but the more you look at the world and how things are organized, the more these parallels seem a natural thing. And in fact, these parallels arise in many cases because of the complexity of groups. And those groups can be the cells in your brain, a group of ants, a group of people, and even bodies in general. And so uh, ant colonies have often been compared to organisms called superorganisms. 
And in fact, that parallel can be very strong indeed. A unique parallel unseen in any other uh, species among the animal kingdom. That's right. Humans don't really make the grade that way. And that's because, at least in my way of thinking, this idea of a superorganism, what does it mean? You have to align it with what other experts are finding out about organisms. And what is an organism? It isn't necessarily complex. There isn't necessarily division of labor. There doesn't need to be different kinds of tissues. They can be very simple things. For example, some of the small colonial algae are organisms called vulvacine algae. And what all these organisms have, simple or complicated, is the existence of a common identity that binds all the members into a unitary whole. And that's what ants are. They are bound together in a colony in a way that humans aren't. Humans can decide to defect. They can go to Canada if there's a war. They can uh, become hermits. Ants never have this choice. They can have a difference of opinion from other ants. They can, be, they can fight and eventually even be killed in their societies, but they can never leave. So it's that that makes ants pretty much exactly like an organism, an ant colony. So each individual part is uh, sort of working towards a common goal. They say there can be differences in opinion. There certainly are differences of opinion in human societies without society breaking down. So there doesn't necessarily have to be a perfect commonality. In fact, much of the creativity that comes out of our minds or out of society, including ant societies, could happen because of disagreements. New thoughts emerge from our mind through often competing thoughts that rise up, and it's part of the creative process to have these different parts of our mind doing different things, and we're not even aware of some of it. Similarly, you know, we have democracies where Democrats and Republicans can hate each other much of the time, and yet we still reach some kind of consensus. And so ants can have these similar disagreements to some extent of certain kinds. What emerges is this common goal, and they can create very complicated processes that work well, even though no individual ant has any idea how to do any of it, or even what's going on in many cases. So even though the individual components aren't are really aware of the broader goal, they have some set of rules which leads to this emergent behavior. So, for example, large swarms of ants can form in army ants, for example. These swarms can be up into the millions of individuals, and no ant really knows what that swarm looks like, knows really where it is in it, but the swarm itself can potentially turn and track prey and deal with the things that they're catching very effectively because the ants release individually signals to each other that lead to localized mass action and uh, the ants converge on prey locally, and if enough prey shows up, there's more action on that end of the swarm, and the swarm can veer in the correct direction towards the place with the best prey. The ants don't know where the place where the best prey is, but nevertheless, the whole thing acts as a unit and gets the job done. Are different ant species organized differently? Well, yes, there's a, quite a variation. There are certain things that make an ant an ant, but within that, there's a wide latitude. So, example, the swarm that I talked about is a technique of moving forward in a vast group without the use of scouts. And what that means is that the ants in the swarm, an army ant swarm, can use an extreme case of shock and awe where they swarm ahead and surprise everything that they contact 
and have a chance to overwhelm and kill it before it can get away. The alternative used by more ants is to send out scouts, as a military group might send out spies, and figure out what's going on around the nest as individuals on their own. But then that lone spy has to get all the way back to the colony, which can take quite a while if it's gone any distance. And by the time it leads a herd of uh, military unit back, uh, that frog or piece of food or enemy could have been long gone. So the scouts can cover a much bigger area and do so in, with some intelligence in terms of what's going on, and yet they lose a lot because they don't have the troops in the right spot fast enough. The swarm acts through ignorance, pours forward, not knowing where it's going, but yet can overwhelm things when it does find them. It, it seems like both strategies would be useful in different types of environments. Yes, and different ants tend to adopt one strategy or another. There are 10 or 12,000 species of ants. That's a similar number to the species of birds. And so the strategies adopted by ants tend to fall along narrower borders than the possibilities. The strategies ants use in general reflect the size of their societies. And so you can have a group of ants that's very small in some species, maybe a dozen or two individuals, and they act pretty much like a hunter-gatherer group of people with each ant capable of doing essentially all the work, not specialized, and all the ants being similar, a little communication, they can go out and do things on their own. And then ant societies of larger magnitude are different. So very large colonies like the army ants, everyone is a specialist, incapable of doing almost nothing except the single task or the few tasks that it's built for. The ants are incapable of operating on their own. They require lots of fast communication between themselves. It's very similar to the transformation that occurred from hunter-gatherer groups of people to modern city-states where, you know, Adam Smith predicted centuries ago that the Industrial Revolution would narrow everyone's abilities down so much that people would become extremely dumb and have to be educated. Well, ants have sort of done that. Specialized ants in a larger society are essentially pretty dumb. They cannot survive very long on their own. So do each individual ants have very specialized jobs in these colonies? Yes, indeed. So the colonies that I first studied for my thesis which is where I start the book, Adventures Among Ants, are the marauder ants of Asia, and they have an extreme division of labor. As in many ants, it's dependent on division of labor through size. So the workers can be a variety of sizes. In fact, in this ant, they can range in size about 500-fold from little tiny minor workers up to soldiers about a quarter inch long with big, tough heads and all the sizes in between. And the sizes and shapes of ants, of these different casts is what they're called, allow them to do different tasks or different jobs differently. That specializes them from birth? Basically, from the time they become adult ants, they grow in the larval stage to the size they're going to be for the rest of their life. So if you're born a small weakling ant, you're stuck there. You can't grow bigger and become a soldier ant later, unlike Woody Allen in the movie Ants, who aspired, at least, to become a soldier ant. And the other problem with that movie is that ants are all female. Woody Allen does not fit in to the ant society norm there at all. So we have all these female workers of different sizes and shapes. And in the species I talked about just now, the marauder ant, 
The small ones do all the mundane tasks. Some of the middle ones do various chores in building the road. The big ones serve as school buses for the small ones, carrying them to the battlefields, and they also make the kill and perform other tasks, like some of them load up on food and become living food tanks. That's quite a collection there. <laughs> so, so there are no males whatsoever? Well, there are males. They're just not allowed into the society. Basically, males are born and pretty much kicked out as fast as they can be. Ant workers are a sisterhood. The queen is their mother. The males are born to have sex and die. That's about all they get out of life. Apparently, that's satisfactory for them. I haven't seen one complain, but then again, they don't speak my language. <laughs> they definitely do not live long. Well, it might not be a bad life. No, you know, it's kind of a stripped-down, male, idealistic life, I suppose. <laughs> so you actually have a number of, of ants that you talk about in the book. Do you have a favorite ant among the you uh, present in the book? Oh, well, you know, the ants that are my favorite are always the ones over the horizon somewhere. But some of the ones that are tucked away in the book, the ones that get most of the play in the book are the big, feisty ones that are uh, have the huge colonies and the complex societies, but uh, here and there in the book I bring up some of the others, which have these small sort of hunter-gatherer groups. They have very temporary nests. They don't need to build highways and much in the way of structures at all, like small groups of people don't. But they have, because those ants and those groups have to operate on uh, alone, without assistance, because they don't have this division of labor, they do some really cool things, like they often have tool chests built into their face so they can do things without help. And so there's an ant in Central America and South America, Acanthignathus, which I call the Swiss Army Ant because of its tool chest. And it has a very long set of jaws with three prongs at the tip that serve as a bear trap for catching springtails, which are minute insects, sort of the rabbits of the insect world, and also a smaller set of jaws for eating and carrying small things and a series of hairs that help it catch the springtails and serve other functions. So these are very cool little ants, and they're tiny in, uh, indeed. They're about the size of a speck, and they live in rotten twigs on the forest floor. It's really not the same as big marauding type ants. No, they they go to the other end of uh, the other extreme, and some of these can do quite well. They're they can be numerous, but of course the the holy grail for ant biology is often as it is with many other groups of organisms, some of these tiny, rarely seen things. I spent a month with two friends looking for one of them. It's what I call the science, silence of the lamb's ant because uh, it has a basket over its face, which turns out to be its jaws, and those jaws are quite something. The ants have the smallest societies ever recorded. They come up to four individuals, and they're very, very rarely seen. In fact, if you're lucky as an ant person, you will see one in your life. So I am fortunate to have seen one. And it turns out that they use those jaws for catching millipedes that are built sort of like porcupines, and they use those long prongs to reach in under those thistly hairs where most am animals can't touch and hold on and grip the millipede and strip it of its uh, defensive hairs. What about their defenses? Do they have uh, very elaborate defenses for uh, avoiding predators? Ants have a, quite a variety of defenses, but they're pretty renowned for being offensive rather than defensive. In fact, ants originated warfare long before people, 
and ants and people are really the two organisms premier fighters in the world that's because as their societies got big as we described their potential for killing off a portion of their population becomes greater and greater so the large societies of ants often battle the most and those have a number of tools the most elemental way of dealing with things if you're ants is to grab your enemy and pull and ants in the swarms of these marauder ants that I described from Asia will meet on broad fronts, grab onto each other, and one here and one there and one there, they'll all link up and pull slowly. And over a period of an hour or two hours or three hours, you will watch and you'll see an arm pop off there, an antennae severed there. Very slowly they pull each other apart. They're in it to win, huh? <laughs> They're in it to win. The cool thing is that they behave as a, a military uh, experts would expect. They follow the rules of combat that humans have used, quite a few rules of combat. For example, one thing, if you meet along a broad front, say a Roman army, you do not put your best soldiers up front. Your Mel Gibson type characters that are always appearing running forward in these movies, you know, early times in these battle scenes would never be up front. They'd be well protected in the rear because who you put up front are the cheap labor. The Romans put their uh, least experienced farmers with their primitive sticks and no defenses and they, these people would get slaughtered. And then big, tough Mel Gibson types would arrive and finish it off. Uh, ants do the same thing. The little workers that I described pour forward first, and they link up, and they are the ones that get killed in these battles. Terrorism does arise in the ant world because uh, large societies, you can afford to throw away some of your labor, as I've said. And this is expressed best in an ant in Borneo that I went to see a couple of years ago. Uh, it's a species that when it contacts the enemy, it detonates, it blows up, and spews a toxic glue all over the place, quite colorful indeed, and this kind of mustard gas kills it and everything around it. It doesn't seem to make much sense, uh, and certainly what they do it for is to get rid of the scout. So if there's an enemy scout entering your territory, you cannot let it leave because it's going to bring a huge patrol back. So this is when these ants come into operation. It's just another sign of how devoted ants are to their societies. They're totally nationalistic. They say, can't defect. They will die at a moment's notice for the cause. In, in your book, you close with four different ways to look at ants. Yes, about. well, one way is ants as individuals, and in a way you shouldn't look at ants as individuals. As I've described, they're really part of a bigger organism, and yet they're underappreciated as individuals. People think of ants as being stupid and have no personalities or capacity to learn, but all these things are not true. As the book shows, ants can learn complicated things and actually do have a bit of a personality. And then there's ants as human societies that we've talked about, ants as organisms, as we've seen, and then ants as a mind. In many, many ways, ants in a group act like neurons in your brain and make decisions. So the best way to think about these is sort of as a collective. It's best to think about them as a collective. You can do that to some extent with humans, and humans are being studied that way a fair amount, but ants are just far better at it. It actually pays for ants to be individually dumb. They can't go off and uh, 
perhaps do something totally individualistic. Uh, and because of that incapacity, the capacity of the whole becomes much stronger. A million ants or 10 million ants in an army ant swarm can weigh as much as you or I do, and it will, in aggregate, have a bigger brain. <laughs> we are definitely running out of time now. I'm just curious if you have some final words regarding ant society. Well, ant societies are fascinating because they are so common, and we tend to overlook what's common in life. It becomes invisible to us after a while. But the fact is that under our feet are organisms that have to solve all the problems that we do and contend with everything from slavery to agriculture to terrorism and construction of highways and home. And I think we can find in them something useful to us just because they've done this for millions of years before humans came along. Well, it is uh, certainly fascinating. And the new book is called Adventures Among Ants, a global safari with a cast of thousands. Dr. Moffat, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Hey, thanks, Charles. Appreciate it. And we're just listening to Mark Moffat discussing the world of ants. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000, so stay tuned. It's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000, and uh, it is, of course, our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, what type of ant would they be? So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, if they were an ant, what type of ant would they be? Dr. Moffat, you ready to play the game? I really don't know. <laughs> is that well, the correct answer? That, that's probably as good an answer as any, I guess. <laughs> All right, ready or not, here we go. Uh, person number one, what type of ant uh, would he be? Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods would be a typical male ant, but only if he lives only a few more days, and I don't wish that of him. <laughs> number two is the uh, pop starlet Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga. Well, most ants really don't have that 
particular kind of uh, personality. I would say perhaps really a sassy uh, carpenter ant of some kind. I don't know. We'd have to. There's over a thousand species of carpenter ant. I'll have to take a day to be sure about it. Okay. <laughs> uh, number three is uh, former mentor E.O. Wilson. E.O. Wilson would be a daciton ant. I think it might be fair to say it's his favorite ant. It's a species in South America, very cool looking with huge lobed heads and he keeps a statue of it on his desk so i think he thinks about them every day okay uh number four is a talk show host oprah winfrey oprah winfrey well she is definitely the queen ant of queen ants and therefore i vote that she would be a leaf cutter ant queen uh, and they are uh, in control of huge societies of millions and i think they enjoy a very nice comfortable underground nest nesting situation as befits her i think very comfortable lifestyle so that's where i'd put oprah that would be down perhaps in paraguay somewhere <laughs> and finally number five what type of ant would he be it's the president of the united states barack obama well darn see this is the trick charles because Ants don't have leaders like Barack Obama. They work through this collective where everybody has kind of equal say and no say at the same time. So Barack would be an outcast from an ant society. The whole idea of having a leader is actually just does not fit with the ant way of life. Uh, and that's why ant societies are superior to ours. You can't take out ants by terrorism. A bomb cannot destroy an ant society uh, because there is no White House. An ant society just keeps going. So I'm afraid I'm going to have to kick Barack Obama out of the ant kingdom. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Dr. Moffat, I want to thank you very much for sticking around playing the game. And, of course, talking about your new book, Adventures Among Ants, a global safari with a cast of thousands. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks again, Charles. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.